Guys, there's uh, some free seats up here, and also if you're sitting next to an empty seat, just shuffle over to make a room at the edge, because there's about 40 guys at the back here looking for seats, and they've been standing all day, God help them. Being informed, I should get going. So, uh, if possible, can we close that door? I've never had a sellout crowd like this before. I am actually dead as the speaker, I'm not an organizer, by the way. Cool. Okay, so this is going to be a pretty fast presentation. I don't mean in terms of time, I mean I'm going to move pretty fast. Uh, the strange accent you're hearing is I'm from Ireland, which is about 8,300 miles away, and uh, I arrived on a plane yesterday, which means that I'm appropriately jet-lagged. It's about 12 in the morning for me. Um, so I'm Des, I'm the co-founder of Intercom, and I'm talking about product strategy today. I, it's likely I'll, start, I'll speak too fast for some of you. If I am, just wave or wink or just do something, and I'll slow down as best as I can. So I love what this Sun Tzu quote, which is that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise you make before you lose. <laughs> and here's one product space. This is social media analytics. And here are some companies who are competitive in that space. And what I find interesting when I was compiling this list is obviously there's a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of them and they're all doing, well, a lot of them are making noise but not necessarily getting anywhere and then a small select few are actually killing it and I believe the product strategy is basically the the high order piece here so in the lean startup book Eric outlines this piece here which is you know this is how you, you say he proposes you build your company the way I'll structure this talk is more like this um, and we're going to go through these sections from the bottom up as best as we can people are still coming in <laughs> um, so Starting with a vision, I love this piece from Alice in Wonderland. It's a great scene where she bumps into the Cheshire cat at a fork in the roads, and she says, which way should I go? And he says, well, where are you going? And she says, I don't know. And he says, well, that doesn't matter which way you go. <laughs> and the point being, if you don't know what you're trying to do, it doesn't really matter what you do. And so when we talk about the vision for a product, which is basically the foundation of any strategy, we talk about what changes do you see coming? Like, where are you actually headed? So what's changing in your target domain for your product? If you're building, say, a project management tool, you have to be aware of like, what is actually changing in the nature of project management. Some simple changes are, you know, remote working is way more popular today than it was, say, 20 years ago, and it's growing. And if your tool doesn't acknowledge that, you're in trouble. Another change is that like, we're seeing a decrease in the importance of deliverables, certainly in web products anyway, and an increase in the importance of prototypes. Much of it's heralded by movements such as Lean Startup. If you're building, say, a music or consumer app, obviously there's no longer a concept of music ownership. Uh, that kind of freaks me out personally because I basically, it turns out I've wasted about $2,500. Uh, I'm sure we're all the same. Like, everyone just bought a CD. You didn't need to. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, so, uh, but also, like, if, you're, if you're building a marketing product, things are changing in marketing itself. So, like, 
you know, we're, sh we're seeing a shift from marketing from being like broadcast direct mail stuff to being marketing that's personal and personalized. We're seeing stuff that's far more analytics driven, stuff that lo looks for closed loop ROI in marketing. That's different to the way marketing was 15 years ago. And similarly, when you're actually looking at building a product for a domain, you have to realize where that domain is going. Secondly, you should look for what technological trends you can bet on. So technology itself, because you're building software, technology is also kind of moving pretty quick too. So the phone is now effectively the primary device for most products. And that wasn't the case for a long time. There's going to be a growth in wearable devices that's already started. This is a prototype of Apple's iWatch. But what we'll see is like, you know, if wearable devices goes the same way as the phone, effectively, batshit though it sounds, you'll be managing projects on your wrist. Hmm. Similarly, so, uh, social networks are now dominating far stronger than they ever did before. Uh, all software is heading towards social software. This is another observation we're making that uh, previously enterprise software was kind of required to look old, boring, and gray. And now if you look at tools like Yammer or Salesforce, they look far more like Salesforce than they do like anything from you know, early 90s, say. So when we talk about the vision for your company, well, there's really two questions we have. Like, what does the domain look like in, in X years? And what does the software, what does software itself look like in X years? And I leave X as a variable there because it really is the distance of your vision. Some people are genuinely, and I don't criticize them for this, but they're building for like a three-year vision. And the idea will be that they'll, you know, they'll get an exit in three years. Other people are really trying to build the next billion-dollar company, and they have a vision that like, transcends even possibly their own lifetime. Uh, but your vision for your product should encapsulate these two things. Secondly, you need a mission that kind of underpins it. And this, the best definition I have of a mission statement is why do you exist other than to make money? So making money is the obvious bit. That's what we're all here for, right? Ish. Um, but when you set out to build a company, obviously you have to make profit because that is actually the oxygen for a business, or at the very least revenue is. Although in Silicon Valley, I guess, I could argue, you could argue both of those are not, not as relevant. But, um, the question is, why do you exist other than to make money? So, and like, this has nothing to do with goals or targets, and it's not about being number one or being in the top 10 or in the Gartner top right quadrant or any of those things. It's literally, how will the world be different if you succeed? And, you know, a company like GitHub, uh, I'm guessing a lot of you guys have heard of, like, their goal, independent of any financial success that the founders have ever had, is that Individuals and companies should write better code faster. And it is undeniable, GitHub could fold tomorrow, but they've actually made a massive dent in how software is produced. And that dent will have rip waves for generations to come. Similarly, Twitter, again, their IPO was super successful, but independent of their success uh, financially, the world is a different place because of Twitter, because now people can create and share information and you know, basically transfer ideas without barriers whatsoever. So that's the vision and the mission. I realize that's kind of a high level sort of, you know, possibly fluffy stuff to start off on for, for a top of product strategy. But I think it's important to get it in there because, it is, you know, if you don't get those two bits right, it doesn't really matter what else you do. So talking specifically about the, the jobs you build your product to target. So I love this quote uh, from, I think it's from Peter Drucker, who says, like, the customer rarely buys what the company thinks it sells. And uh, it highlights a wonderful mismatch in, in, like, in companies that focus so heavily on the industry they're in and the category that they sell into and forget about what it is people actually buy off them. So your business has like, lots of different hypotheses. And what I'm going to talk about here is specifically uh, the first two, which is 
One hypothesis is that you believe that if you create a product, people will actually do it, but will you know, realize that behavior that you're supporting. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, are customers actually currently doing this? So what if you're building project management, it's pretty easy. Are people currently managing projects? Yes. There are other software tools, I'm not going to name them, but like, uh, where like, you, know, you, know, you can imagine the sort, like you know, tweet a picture of your teeth. And it's like, do people actually do that? <laughs> no. So obviously that's a fictitious one, but like I've seen ones that aren't far off it. And the way you sort of test that hypothesis is this idea of Genshi Ibutsu, which is you know, observe the real world and see what actually is happening. Another one is like, you know, if it is happening, can we act, will software getting, does software coming into the mix actually improve things? So some, unfortunately, some workflows can't be easily perfected by software. And lastly, if both of those things are true, can you actually address the people who you need to sell to? So one, when we talk about jobs that products do, uh, one key point I like to make is that customers don't buy product categories. And they don't purchase your product because of their demographics. And this is Clay Christensen's idea of jobs to be done. But what he says is that, like, you know, the fact that I'm a 32-year-old male from Ireland doesn't actually trigger me to buy anything. You know, I, I don't wake up in the morning and just get pulled out of bed by my demographics. You know, <laughs> drive me down the road to buy things. <laughs> what actually happens is a problem occurs in life, and then they acknowledge this problem. They go, "I need to solve this." So. One classic problem here is anyone who's ever done consulting has had a version of this. You're working with a client, and at the last second, they're like, hey, here's some more people we need to work with. Can you loop them in? And you're like, oh my god, I have to loop these guys in. So then you have to go back and search all your relevant emails and work out, oh my god, which ones should I send them? Is all this shit cool to share, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're like, you know what? There has to be a better way to do this. And you start thinking, well, maybe if we had a project management tool, it would help. Or you know, we've all had this problem when you're working with a client where you're like, all right, I'm going to send you over V1 hyphen final. And you're like, okay, here's V1 hyphen final hyphen edits. And you're like, okay, here's hyphen final hyphen edits hyphen DT, because that's me. And it's like, okay, well, here's hyphen DT hyphen August her theme. And it just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, hands up who's actually had this problem at some point in their career. Exactly right. See? So you'll take it for granted. Like, this is a real problem that really occurs, and it's caused many of you, many of you to actually take actions or buy products or subscribe to services to solve it. Um, and again, like this isn't about customer demographics because if I was to actually demographically survey this audience, I would get probably an age range of 18 to like, I'll be generous and say 30. Uh, <laughs> and I would get like people from all the countries in the world and all, all sorts of areas and none of that causes anything. And it's not really about checklists or categories or any of those things. What you guys actually have when you put your hands up there is you have a problem that you want to solve. And you know, what's interesting is like, these things, uh, specifically these parts, they correlate with purchasing behavior a lot of the time. But what they don't do is cause it. And confusing correlation and causation is messy. Wherever I see firemen, I see a fire. Therefore, firemen cause fires, right? <laughs> and in fact, the more firemen, the bigger the fire. So it must be true, okay? <laughs> That's what happens when you confuse things that correlate with an action with things that actually trigger the action itself. So to test if your product is genuinely needed, you study the job that it does. The job we see is being, there's three key areas you have to be able to answer real quick. The problem, the situation that causes it, and the success criteria, i.e. what makes you pick a winner. So when we talk about the actual problem itself, it's, has to, you have to define a problem in terms of what your users actually experience. And 
from that you should see where the negative impact is like what actual pain is this it's not just oh that's a bit inconvenient but what pain does it fundamentally cause and to do that you keep asking why is this a problem why is this a problem so the classic one I hear from consultant owners is I don't really know what all the guys are working on you say okay well why does that matter and it's like well I can't tell for free to take on a new product well, why does that matter well I can't plan a robot you're like okay so we're starting to get to an actual fundamental problem here, which is that you have no visibility into the future of your business. And that's caused by the fact that you can't see all these other things. Or, I can't see what users have done what. Why is that a problem? Well, I don't know when we launch a new feature if it's a success or not. Well, why is that a problem? I don't know if our product's getting better or worse. Okay, so what you're actually trying to do here is work out if your product's improving or not. And everything along the way are symptoms with some causation. And the way you work this out is by actually you know, it is unfortunately, you know, you can't solve this in Vim or Emacs. You actually have to go and talk to humans. Um, but it's true fundamental observation. And what you really want to look for here is a check. Find the point at which somebody is paying to solve this problem. Hey, we nearly lost the laptop there. Um, stay. Good. Okay. Um, if you go find where somebody is actually writing a check to solve this problem, that's when you know you have a market. A lot of things you'll find people giving out about, but they will not pay money to solve. You know, like a classic one is, oh, my Facebook feed gets so boring, I'm just, it's just full of all these baby photos. Okay, that, that might actually be a problem, but show me who's paying to solve it, right? So, you know, or maybe you could build a consumer app against that, but I don't know. Um, there is a Chrome plugin that hides baby photos if anyone's interested. <laughs> the next thing you should know is the situational context. So what actually, what is the situation that triggers this? So when does the problem occur? What events precede it? And what are the invariants? And the invariants are what's interesting. This is the stuff that's always true. So you refine the invariants of the situation. And the more precise you can get a description, the better a product you can create. I, I really like this uh, piece here. Um, on the left, what it's you, you probably can't read it, uh, so I'll do my best. But in the top left, what we have is a situation, and it's quite blurry, right? It says, "I want something to eat," and when you want something to eat, if I said, "Well, what's the solution to that?" you would say, "It could be a restaurant, it could be McDonald's, it could be a sandwich, it could be a home home dinner, it could be any of those type of things," and then you can refine it progressively. You can say, "Well, what if I'm in a rush and I want something to eat?" Okay, well, we can cut out fine dining, you know. And then it's like, I'm in a rush, I'm starving, and I want to stay mobile, and I want something to eat. Okay, well, now we can cut out things like soup, because it's really hard to eat that on the go. I presume, I've never tried it, but... Uh. And you can progressively refine this until you get to, like, I'm really hungry, I need something that I can eat quickly right before a meeting, and I'm walking across the city. And you're like, right. All of a sudden, a lot of solutions are ruled out, and likely uh, one, one or two solutions present themselves. Things like pizza and Subway and things like that are all solutions to this. What's interesting is that these, all the, you know, if you think you're in the like, uh, food industry, then you would have like, high-end restaurants thinking they're competitive with, like, say, McDonald's. But when you realize, if you look at the job itself, which is mobile, quick, junky food that gets me full before a meeting, you realize you're only competitive with a small set of other people. And again, studying the demographics of the pizza industry won't get this to you because everyone has this problem. We've all bought a pizza slice at some point in our life. I don't even need to survey that. but. Um, like, it is true like, that you know, the demographics might correlate it, but they don't cause it. And the reason I say that is because like, even Barack Obama will actually eat a slice of pizza now and then, because even though he may, may well be leader of the free world, he also has time constraints and sometimes he needs to be able to eat on the go, and that's what a pizza slice is really, really good. To be more specific in terms of software, because I know you're not all setting up pizza startups, I hope. Um, <laughs> Hello Sign for Gmail have this nailed. They basically understand that hands up here has ever received a PDF and been asked to sign it. Right, everyone, okay? As a side note, how ridiculous is that? But we all have that problem. And you know what you do? 
like depending on how advanced a computer user you are, you either download it and like edit it in preview or something like that, or you know, we do things like what my family do, which is like print it out, sign it, take a photo of it, and email it to themselves, and then email it back to the client. You know, all these crazy workflows. Hello Sign is a plugin that basically, whenever you receive a PDF in Gmail, it puts the link beside it that just says sign. You click sign, and it pops open an editor. You click where you want to sign, and that's it. Done. Similarly, like uh, another example of a problem is like anyone who's ever working on a, a reporting tool, there's only really one job reports do they get people promoted or fired. But usually the person creating the report doesn't want them to get fired. So when you're actually generating a report, you, your, your actual job to be done here isn't like, you know, visualize and spark lines and trends and like, you know, Pareto charts and all these sort of fancy things. It's actually just how can we make this person look like they're doing a good job, regardless of whether they're doing a good job. I've, uh, I've actually worked on like this problem before where I've had people say, if you just let me edit the chart, I'm like, oh, you can edit the chart by editing the data. I can't edit the data, I just want to edit the chart. I'm just like, why? And they're like, because it doesn't look good. And I'm like, so you just want a, you want a nonsense chart that will get your promotion to be like, spot on. <laughs> but that is the job of, of reports. I'm like, you know, if we're actually designing for that key job, that's what we should do, you know? And um, so the test to understand if you have a good grasp on a situational context is you should know the chain of events that causes the problem. So under what circumstances will purchasing behavior happen? And lastly, success criteria. So you have a consideration set, which is like, you know, you're running across town and you need to get something to eat or you need to sign a PDF or whatever. And then you have success criteria, which is like, you know, what, under what circumstances will I make a choice? And that, that's what actually helps you define a winner. So what matters to users is how you should pitch your product because these are, the, these are likely success criteria. What's the fastest? What's the cheapest? What's the one that looks best? What's most reliable? You know, what works with Excel? All these sort of, uh, you know, pretty hard requirements that users actually have. Unfortunately, a lot of like designers and developers tend to pitch as to things that they care about, not things their users care about. So, you know, developers might care that it's a ground up rewrite. So they'll be like, you know, introducing the latest, like, you know, quick invoice 2012, you know, ground up rewrite in Python. It's like, who cares except for the developers who built it that it's written in Python? Similarly, you get things like it's HTML5 based or it's Linux compatible or any of those things. None of that is actually what users care about. And if you're a designer out there laughing, it's the exact same thing as well. It's like, oh, we've got this new flat design. And I'm like, again, no one cares, you know. <laughs> Apple tried that, like, you know. Um, so a test that you have a good grasp on the consideration set, or sorry, the success criteria, is given a set of products that meet, the, that do the job, can you predict which one will get chosen? And if you can, then you understand what it is that users actually value. So just to recap, we have the problem, and you can test that by finding the, uh, basically an evidence that somebody's already paying to solve it. Otherwise, it could be just a nuisance that people don't really care about. Situational context, do you know under what circumstance purchasing behaviors happen? And success criteria, given a set of products, do you know which one customers will choose? So, as a side note, we're talking about jobs. The jobs that people do change rarely. The products that they hire change frequently. So, Three things you should know about jobs, and all of this is basically the underpinning of how you actually target your product. Jobs are timeless. So here we have five people on a subway, and they're all doing the same job using five different generations of technology. Laptop, phone, Kindle, other phone, I guess, and book. And people go, you know, I've saw this recently, people give out and say, all oh, this new technology is making you so antisocial. Like as if this never happened before. <laughs> 
the point I make here is that like you know the concept of being bored on public transport on your way to work has existed for as long as people have had public transport to take them to work, and you know they will continue to hire different tools to do it. Ev, uh, Ev Williams said that uh, here's the forerunner for a billion dollar business, and Ev would know because he's built one. Uh, he said that take a human desire when it's been around for a long time and use technology to take out steps. I'd extend that a little bit and say either take out steps, make it accessible to more people, or make it accessible in more places. But if you do any of those, you will absolutely nail it as long as this job really exists. Photo sharing 1.0 is here on the left. Hands, hands up who had a uh, set of photos in a shoebox under their bed at some point. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Hands up who used Flickr. Right, exactly. Hands up who uses Instagram. Right, exactly. Right, sorry, your elbows are pretty sorry now and stuff. <laughs> but uh, the point being, like every time, all we're doing is taking the old desirable trait of I want to take photos and share them with my friends, and we're just removing steps. It used to be that they had to call around to your house and you'd wheel them out because you keep them under your bed so your parents wouldn't find them and you'd go through them. And then it was like Flickr, you'd email links around and say, check out this album I've added you. And now it's Instagram, and it's just, it's consistently there. Similarly, Square launched cash. The idea of transferring money from one person to another has existed forever. But Square Cash is now just email somebody with a dollar amount in the subject line and they get paid. Magic, right? This is, it's this sort of stuff is why Square was undeniably going to be, well, it already is quantifiably, but like Square will be a, a big billion dollar business. Similarly, like uh, Ev is going again, this time with Medium, and this is basically Blogger 2.0, or maybe 3.0 if you count Twitter as 2.0. But Ev has been obsessed with the idea of people sharing their thoughts and writing for as long as he seems to have been working in the internet. Jobs transcend technologies. So your product isn't tied to a desktop, laptop, tablet, phone, or watch. Just like a newspaper wasn't tied to ink on dead wood, phone networks jobs wasn't tied to sending SMSs. It was tied to you know, communicating between people. The problem is if you get obsessed with the medium, in this case SMS, you find like a better technology comes along and you, you think everyone wants to send text messages, but they don't. And this is why most phone operators are seeing like 80 to 90% of their pro profits just disappear in the next five years. It's estimated that it'll be down to like 2% of where it was. And that's purely because they were obsessed with being in the SMS industry. So think about your job first. And any shift in either your domain or in technology should enable the job to be, ch uh, to be done in more places or in better ways. And that's what you need to uh, focus on. Also, jobs, if you think about your product in terms of the job it does and not the category it's in, you have an advantage. These guys have been obsessed with being in the newspaper industry, right? And they tell people, they look to their left and they look to their right and say, oh my God, we're after losing a lot of profit. Did you take it? Did you take it? They're trying to, they haven't a clue where it's gone. They're like, someone must have taken it. You know? and, um, what they didn't realize is that their customers just want something to read. You guys all know Metro, I presume it circulates over here, uh, the free newspaper that's given out transport, right? They can't even give that away anymore. Like this is literally, they, this is the thing that they hand out for free and people walk by because they're looking at their phone. You know, they, they, when, you, when like your competitors are giving, charging zero euro or zero dollar and they're still, uh, you know, they're struggling to distribute, you know, the writing is on the wall. In software, like, Weather websites obsess about being weather websites. So they'll tell you things like precipitation and you know, humidity and all this stuff that no one really cares about, right? Because I mean, if you tell me like, it's 62% humidity tomorrow, I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what I actually care about, the reason I launch a weather app is because I want to know, is it gonna rain? Do I need an umbrella? That's the questions. The only other reason I think people launch weather websites is because I'm going to have a barbecue on Saturday, will it rain? 
But basically, most, like, you know, the reason Dark Sky and Umbrella Today and things like that are taking off is because they're realizing that the job isn't weather, per se, as in that no one cares whether it's 26 or 28 degrees next Tuesday. They're like, is it sunny or not? Do I need an umbrella or not? Should I plan to be a party or not? That's what they actually care about. Um, I'll give you an example from Intercom. Uh, we have this tool in Intercom that basically shows you all your customers around the world, right? <coughs> Just literally people on the map, right? We built it thinking it was goofy and cool and people enjoy it. And we wondered why is this thing so damn popular? Because everyone loves it. Now, when we studied why people actually use this product, it's not what we thought it was. People use this product when they want to impress people at a trade show, or if they want to tweet uh, you know, to show off how well their business has grown, or if they want to impress investors with, like, look how global our business is. That's why people actually do it. And when you realize that, you realize this tool isn't actually a map at all. And if we obsess about being in a map, we're going to focus on things like, well, we should get better geographical accuracy or precise filtering, or let's do heated cluster zones. No one wants any of that. What they want is a better looking map. So you know, if we were to like animate it with live tiles and like have a full screen version and hide the sensitive data so you can share it everywhere and make it downloadable as a keynote slide so you can just drop it into your investor deck, that's actually what people wanted the product for. It's not a map, it's a tool for impressing people. So one simple change was we just changed the typography and a bit of the color and everyone's like, oh, I love the new map. And like that beats the hell out of like, you know, many, many months of like, you know, we really need to get these zoom controls right. You know, people don't care, they never zoomed in. They always want to show the entire world, you know? So, as a side note on this, it's like technology that doesn't have a job fails. Segway spent a long time looking for a job, and it turns out that basically traveling slightly faster than the human walks, but definitely slower than the human runs, <laughs> while being about one and a half foot above everyone else, isn't actually a useful thing most of the time. <laughs> So they, you know, when you pitch Segway from that point of view, it's like there's a very, oh, thank you. Uh, I'm just acknowledging my ten minute warning. So when you pitch Segway that way, you're like, Jesus, what the hell would that ever be useful for? But because it's just it doesn't map to any human behavior. What Segway found was a part-time job doing things like tourist trips and mall cops at airport police. Because there is a very small set of events where it is actually useful to travel without getting tired, slightly faster than you normally walk, and being a little bit taller so you can see above crowds. But it's certainly not like that. This wasn't the vision for Segway when they built it, obviously, right? Like, <laughs> however, like you know, they kind of fumbled their way in there. You could argue Google Glass is still looking for a job. <laughs> the reason I say this is because when people show me Google Glass, what they show me is what I can do, not what they do do, and that's the difference between like you know, you know, offering features versus offering quantifiable benefits. Google Wave never found a job. They released this. It's like, it's real time. You can play chess. You can edit documents. You can collaborate with your friends. You can organize a dinner party. What? You know, it, it, you know people didn't, it didn't map onto anything particular for people. And when I look at this list that we saw earlier, I realize everyone's building products to fit into categories without necessarily focusing on building tools to do jobs for people. Just as a side note as well, one, you know, breakthrough technology often doesn't have a job. If you look at this axis here, we can see that breakthrough is when you have a massive technical achievement However, you have limited market impact. Uh, a game changer, something like the iPhone, where you actually bring in new tech, but also map it onto a lot of regular jobs. And disruptive technology is often, you know, there's actually no new tech involved. It's just somebody really understands what the job is and perfects that instead. If you're the first into a market and you're saying, oh, we've built something like no one else has built before, there's always dangers there, because one, if no one else has built before, you're speculating that you're creating new behavior. And as we said, jobs rarely change. But two, uh, as the phrase goes, you can recognize pioneers by the arrows in their back, or um, 
the other phrase I've heard of this, I'm not sure if it's correct here, but like the first guys get the arrows, the second guys get the land, right? Mm. So <laughs> if you're first in, you're usually worse at marketing because you don't really know what you've built, you just know you've created some things. So the product you build uh, has to be limited in scope for the jobs it does because you can't build everything, right? You have to draw a line somewhere. So if you're like project management, you might say, well, well, here's what we're going to do. We have to update the client. We have to review progress. We have to review individual performers. We have to start a project with a new client. These are all different things project managers do. However, you, have to, you can't take them all. What you have to take is some of that behavior. And yes, you can expand over time, but your first step should be to capture some realistic behavior. Uh, the definition of the MVP in uh, Lean Startup is like the version of a product that enables a full turn of the build measure uh, loop with minimum amount of effort. One point I'd make about that is that like, if you're talking about building a concierge MVP, you're only testing if the, if the market demand exists, which is grand, that's totally solid, but like, it's different, there's a different question of like, you know, can we actually build software that solves that demand? So product MVP, MVP is what I'm talking about here, like when I talk about, let's test if we can actually build software that people will use to do this. Because, you know, for sure, I would use a product that finds me the most romantic date in San Francisco, but I just don't think you can automate that or do it with an algorithm. So you have to draw a line somewhere around what your product is going to do. You have to decide a point where your product stops and somebody else takes over. And just a couple of guidelines on that. One of them is, uh, so actually just as an example, sorry, Keynote for example, which I'm using here in the middle. Keynote starts when I'm done with brainstorming and I'm ready to do slides. And it sticks around until my presentation's done, but it doesn't like let me upload the slide share or tweet my slides or all those other things that exist in my workflow of giving a talk at this conference. Basecamp starts when the project starts, but it ignores all the, the pre-contract discussions about finances and all that sort of stuff. So you have to decide where your product starts and have a strong opinion about that. You should start at the first step where you can add unique value in the workflow. And then when you find that step, work out how to make a transition from the previous step seamlessly. My favorite example of this is, uh, well, I'll come to it in a second. If you are, say, trying to organize travel plans, you, know, you will realize there's a complicated flow of like, people research flights, they, have a look online, they mail them to their friends, they buy, they eventually they buy them, then they share the plans, they start creating calendar events and all that. What TripIt did, which, which I really liked, was TripIt said, right, we're not gonna bother competing with Expedia or any of those, we're gonna say, right, let's start when the flight is booked. So, and then what was the previous step before that? Well, they have a receipt. Let's start with that receipt. And that's why, one of the reasons TripIt works super well is because you literally just forward it receipts and it takes it from there. And that, you don't get that insight unless you think of the flow and think of what precedes using your product and then say, how can we bridge perfectly from there? Where should you stop? Well, if there's a well-defined market leader and you don't want to take over, for example, if the next thing to happen is you know, like that they'll go you know, pay money for the product and you don't want to compete with PayPal or Stripe, then yeah, stop at that point. If the next thing is done in loads of different ways, for example, let's say you're a payroll, uh, sorry, let's say you're a time tracking tool and you want to pay salaries, well, it turns out that's done different ways all over the world, taxing is different, all that stuff is just crazy different, so maybe you're better off stopping because there's just too many different ways to complete it. Or lastly, if it's just something that you can't build any new value onto, so like if the next step is a phone call, don't build VOIP. That's just not, like that's just, you know, you're not gonna do anything useful there. So where would you stop with an MVP? Well, I'd say stop with your MVP when the first place where you've solved an actual problem. Now, one interesting thing here is Gall's Law, which says that a complex system always has evolved from a simple system. However, a, uh, you can't design and build a complex system from scratch. It will fail, right? You'll see this happen all the time. Everyone who goes to the enterprise market early makes this mistake. They build something massively complex. 
Start with the smallest version that could possibly work. And speaking of smallest version, oh, there we go. Um, I like to call this the Scopilox principle, which is, uh, you know, don't build a product too, too big because then no one can adopt it. Don't build a product too small because then it'll be labeled as being a feature, not a product. If you get it just right, that's the actual the quantifiable right amount of value. So in order to, you know, this piece is called staying lean. There are literally hundreds of reasons to add features to your product. And you have to say no to pretty much all of them, right? So the reasons you'll get is like, hey, Des, we just rolled out this feature and look, the engagement's up. And the points you have to be aware when people say the engagement is up is like, well, one, is it, you know, is it up or have you just pushed engagement around? I often, I'm often reminded of like Diet Coke when they released Diet Coke with Lime. They're like, look at all the sales Diet Coke with Lime got, but it was just all Diet Coke customers buying the extra lime drink. Mm -hmm. So they actually created no new value, but they just split their product and forked their behavior. And now they have to compete on two different fronts for no extra reason. This is why Facebook are like you know hesitant to build things like dislike buttons or sympathize buttons or any of those things because simply like they're already getting the behavior. When people don't like something, they write a comment instead. If they put in a dislike button, they're actually not creating new behavior. So another point about behavior is that like you might get engagement with something, but that doesn't mean it's good. Like you could actually add Tetris to your product, and people would play it. <laughs> Tetris is fun, but it's not the right type of engagement for your product, right? <laughs> Another reason you'll hear to add, add something to your product is like, oh, it's a pretty small feature, Des. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, it looks like a pretty small feature. But anyone who's ever worked in software knows it's more like this. <laughs> but secondly, just because something's a small feature, that's no reason why it should be added to your product. The scope of a body of work to add a feature, like you, is nothing to do with whether or not it belongs in your product. And for some reason, people couple those, but they never should. This customer is trying to quit. Yeah, sure, let them. because. The thing you have to work out with that is like that's feature blackmail, and you know that's not how you actually build a product. Oh, we'll make it optional. Boom. Yeah, here's your setting screens. You have like you know the, the two hidden costs of making things optional is one you've got like user complexity where no one understands what your product, uh, how to use your product anymore. Secondly, you can't market it because you've now that you know bloat to the point that, that like it's really really hard for anyone to understand. Another classic is, well, we've got nothing else to do. It's like, so that's why we should build this feature? Is that a reason? Uh, my argument to that is always the same. It's like, if you've time to lean, you've time to clean, right? So like, if, if you like, literally have nothing to do, go and fix some bugs or refactor some code, but don't just go adding random junk to a product, right? The, the devil runs UX workshops for idle hands. And, uh, <laughs> another classic is like, well, you know, here's all our competitive features. You're like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, so you look at all the like, oh, we better copy all these features. But at the same time, your competitor's looking and saying, we need to get rid of half of these. They're all they're <laughs> bothering you. <laughs> you know, copy your competitors is the best path towards delivering yesterday's broken technology tomorrow. So before you let a feature creep into your MVP, ask these questions. Is it part of the vision? Is it a forward step? Right? You could integrate with fax machines, but is that actually really future-facing? Does it belong in the workflow? You know, is it necessary for product market fit? Will all customers use it? So lastly, just on measure and approve, here's like my closing pieces. This is product strategy 101, right? And this is like a very simple tool. Draw two lines. One of them is all of the people, the other one's all of the time. And they just degrade in, in percentages. And you work basically plot your features along them. So let's say you're a project management tool. Here is the features and how they're used. All of the people, all of the time, use things like post message, create project, add project, etc. And as you map that out, and this is really simple analytics, by the way, real simple. Um, as you map it out, you should see it like this, right? The stuff in the top right is actually the high order bit. That is your product. That is the job you do. Okay. 
the stuff in the top left, the exclamation mark pieces, I think I said that wrong earlier, uh, the exclamation mark pieces, that's the stuff that is actually scaring your product. That's the edge case features that you accidentally built that some people will cling on to. Because even if you have a really bad idea, someone's going to be like, yeah, I need that. You know? <laughs> Another way to think of it is this, right? For any given feature, work out what percentage of your user base is using it. And everyone like, will, will try to claim that this is how they're set up. This is the dream app. This never happens. You usually get something like this. You have a product and you had a couple of good hits. Then a couple of people ask for a calendar and you're like, yeah, screw it, let's build a calendar. And then no one uses it. So now you're left with a calendar hanging off a product that no one really wanted. So this is how you should be thinking about your product in terms of usage. If you see something like this, the chances are you're on the road to disruption. This means you've got one killer feature and everything else you've built since then hasn't worked and you should actually be doubling down on that killer feature instead. You're vulnerable for disruption when you're in that category, when you've just got one thing that people are using it for. So to stay lean, limit your improvements to one of three things. Either get more people using it, get people using it more, or just make it quantifiably better. That's the only three ways you should ever improve a product. And I, I see this like this. You can either increase the frequency at which people use it, or increase the amount of people using it. And it's important to think about every line of code you write from that perspective, because otherwise you're probably just adding on more junk. So if you want to get more people using it, you rank and resolve the barriers to usage. Why aren't you using it? Oh, we can't, resolve, we can't import via the CSV, or we can't change the foot, or whatever. Rank them and resolve them one by one, and communicate them. And again, this is where the five whys is useful. So users aren't using the reports feature. Why, 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 why? Well, it turns out we need a better API. You don't stop one step after one step, because that's not going to do it. And similarly, you don't listen to one customer. You have to talk to lots of different customers as well. Common mistake is people, I asked them five, why five times, and they're ready. You should talk to a few different people and get a few different answers. When you look at this map of your feature usage, you should, you know, this is what I call like a fish or cook bait, right? Either we're either using these features and we're going to build them and improve them, or we're going to kill them. But don't leave them hanging around half served, because that's basically what makes you have a half, half bloated, half buggy product, basically. Frequency improvements are slightly different. Your goal is to get people doing something more. So the people who are best at this at the moment are Facebook and LinkedIn. Every time you launch Facebook, there's always some new activity event. And they just know that if they just keep packing that stream, you're going to keep launching Facebook. LinkedIn do this with emails. They're like, you know, if we email them, just tell them, like, you know, someone who you've never met and don't know viewed your profile. And you're like, show me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, there are frequent, there are ways to get people doing something more, and that's what you should focus uh, frequency improvements on. This, like, you know, a good way to think about this is like a trigger. So it, the trigger will be like someone viewed your profile. The action, find out who that is. Reward will be like, you know, you're now connected to that person. And that in and of itself creates an investment. And that investment is that LinkedIn has now has one more way to contact you, which is like, you know, now anything that person, you know, say congratulate him on his new job. What we don't realize is our generation are creating exponential reasons for the likes of LinkedIn and Facebook to, to contact us frequently, uh, which is, you know, great for them, not so great for our attention. So, uh, to wrap up, I want to say thanks. I want to say you're going to ask me about the slides, so you can just drop me a mail at desinintercom.io. I'm not being mean about that, it's just I don't want them to go online before I'm done with this sort of circuit, so just mail me, I'll, I'll reply straight away with them. Uh, where can you read more? Our blog is at insideintercom.io. It contains loads of this material and loads more about product strategy, product management, design, startup stuff, all that. Our product's intercom.io itself, and thank you very much for your time. Do I have time for, I, I've time for two questions? Yeah, two questions. Too many answers then. Uh, yeah, go. So you talked about the problem and looking for the problem first, which yeah. we hear over and over again, yet many of the most popular apps are solving a problem that 
So, okay, let's take Snapchat. So, did anyone here ever pass notes in class? Yeah. I, I would put Snapchat in that exact type of behavior. I, I really don't, like, I really believe that like there, there is no new behavior. Everything is just a modification of existing behavior. The protocol of passing a note in class was you'd send, you'd pass a note to a girl you like and say, hey, you know, any chance you could like, go for a walk tomorrow or something? <laughs> and the deal was, if your teacher caught you, you'd rip it up before they'd get a chance to see it. Or you'd eat it, or you'd do something to get rid of it, because it would be really embarrassing. <laughs> and when I look at people Snapchatting each other, and, make, uh, you know, and the, the value prop of Snapchat is stuff that you say that is not recorded forever for all time and isn't shared with everyone, I realize that behavior has actually been around for quite a while. Um, so the problem there is, like, I would say express Snapchat as being Facebook is great for everything. You want to share with everyone forever on all time and have a public record attached to you. Now, that's actually not the majority of what people say. You know, I went for a beer last night before my plane. I had a conversation. I do not want that recorded forever. You know, um, so. I, I agree sometimes the job emerges afterwards, but I, I really believe that the job itself isn't out of the blue. It's just people actually did want to flirt and girls wanted to show photos of their outfits to their friends before they go out. They wanted to do this forever, but Instagram didn't do that job and Facebook didn't do that job and Snapchat does do that job. And so that's my opinion on that. One more question, anyone? Yeah, I like, yeah. your, I like your insights on how you can apply a similar kind of product strategy where you're actually selling a service or yeah, so it's interesting then. So we, we used to be a consultancy, and over time we realized that like uh, one whole job of hiring an outside service, well, one reason we were often hired was because somebody basically wanted to push a decision through, but they couldn't without getting someone else's opinion. Like they, you know, their manager didn't believe them, so like, I'm gonna hire some experts. So we'd be hired, and our job would be Tell our boss what we want you to tell him. You know, <laughs> I say that like not not to be like trite or funny, but like uh, I find like there are reasons why consultancies are hired. Sometimes it's just cover your ass as in like, well, we got a consultant to look at this. Uh, other times it's like pushing agenda through. Sometimes it is literally like you know it's very simple like you know we can't design. We need someone who can design. Come in and design. Um, and in those cases, you know maybe the job is just flat out design, but it's not. It's usually more than that. It's usually like someone wants to go. Last time we did this, we had a really bad design, so I'm going to try and get promoted, and to do get promoted, I'm going to get a, a consultant to do the job for me. But like, you always have a job that at its root, when someone hires you, maybe they're hiring you because they want to get promoted. But you can actually, like, this is a time where it's good to do a little bit of social engineering and go for a drink on the first day of the engagement, just sort of say, look, let's just lay our cards at the table here. I want to make money out of this. What do you want out of this? And they'll probably tell you, and it's usually I want to get promoted, or I need to undo a mistake I did before, or I need to, like, I've just joined this company, I need to prove everyone I know what I'm doing. Once you understand their goals, you actually can work around that. And you start to realize, well, if your jobs get promoted, the only thing that matters is your boss, right? So can we, as a trade-off, can we cut out every other stakeholder? Like, let's just agree that I keep you happy and your boss happy. And like, you know, you can do all this, you know, behind the scenes. It doesn't need to be in contracts or anything. But again, like, the more you understand the job you're actually hired for, the better you can deliver it. That's, you know, that was certainly my, I, I only realized that retrospectively. I didn't know that at the time. If I did, I would have made a lot more money, I guess. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll be around in the Venetian room afterwards if anyone wants to talk. Thanks so much for coming along, guys.